Welcome to Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi here with Zach and a special guest, Alexia Underwood. Hi. Hello. So U.S. presidents often call other world leaders when those leaders win an election, and usually it's pretty boring and doesn't make much news. That wasn't the case this week, because President Trump congratulated would-be dictator Vladimir Putin on his fake win in a very fake election. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. The uh, call had to do also with the fact that we will uh, probably get together in the not-too-distant future. So here's what happened. On Sunday, Putin won another election by the shocking margin of about 75 to 25. It was really a close one. Trump's advisors briefed the president about what he should say if he called and literally gave him a note card in all caps that said, do not congratulate. So you can guess what happened next. But here's what didn't happen. Last week, we talked about a terrifying case in England where Russia used a nerve agent to try to kill a former Russian spy and his daughter. So Trump could have used the call to let Putin know he'd crossed the line. And again, you won't be surprised to know that he didn't. So, Zach, let's start with the call, which was followed by a kind of an amazing tweet. And the tweet's worth reading, I think, in its entirety. Yeah. So there's a series of two. Right. And, and I'll read them out loud. I called President Putin of Russia to congratulate him on his election victory. In past, Obama called him also. The fake news media is crazed because they wanted me to excoriate him. They are wrong. Getting along with Russia and others is a good thing, not a bad thing. They can help solve problems with North Korea, Syria, Ukraine, ISIS, Iran, and even the coming arms race. Bush tried to get along but didn't have the smarts. Obama and Clinton tried, but they didn't have the energy or chemistry. Remember, reset. Peace through strength. That was a very dramatic reading, Zach. Well, I, look, you can't do Trump tweets in like a boring voice, right? You really have to like put the gusto into it that the all caps require. Yeah, the all caps definitely requires gusto. So you were ready to annotate that, literally annotate it in real time. So annotate. Yeah. So like, look at the list of things that he mentioned. Okay, like North Korea, it's not clear to me how useful... Russia would be. In fact, they're helping the North Koreans in a variety of different ways. Syria, they are literally part of the problem and have helped turn the war around in Bashar al-Assad's favor. Ukraine, they literally are the problem. Like, they invaded Ukraine and annexed part of its territory. And the coming arms race, nobody knows what he's talking about there. It, it's like a concept that exists only in Trump's head. Like, this is his view of Russia is just completely distorted and divorced from reality. And so, Alexei, if we're going to strip it down, his argument is, let's be nice to Putin, and then Russia can help us around the world, even with problems that they basically created. But does that make sense? Is there a coherence there that you see, or is that just sort of Trump administration confusion, policy confusion, verbal confusion, confusion? No, I would agree with Zach here. I don't think that this is an argument that makes sense because Russia is responsible for creating most of the national security problems that Trump mentioned, or at least taking part in them. For me, that means that there's no reason to think Putin would have had any real interest in working with the U.S. to solve them. Um, in Syria, Russia's backed Bashar al-Assad. In Ukraine, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, and there would be no conflict in Ukraine if Russia had not invaded. I mean, the coming arms race, as you said, is unclear. We don't know what the hell he's talking about. So to pull a line from, from Alex Ward's great piece that he wrote about this yesterday, Trump is basically asking an arsonist to help put out the fires that he set in the first place. Yeah, I was struggling for the right metaphor, but it looks like Alex really nailed <laughs> Alex it. Alex really nailed that, yeah. Also, your Arabic accent on Bashar al-Assad makes me al-Assad. Yeah, really <laughs> embarrassed. Um, but, but look, what this would be, or what Republicans would be saying if this were a Democratic president doing this, right, or President Obama, is that it's appeasement. Quite literally, 
Russia created a problem. And in order to try to get their help in solving it, Trump is trying to be nice to them and make concessions. It is rewarding bad behavior. So another analogy is thinking of it like paying off a hostage taker, right? Like Ukraine and Syria are hostages that Putin has taken. And now Trump is like, well, why don't you, you know, help? <laughs> if you don't kill the hostages, we'll give you a lot of money or, you know, in the metaphorical diplomatic recognition so of money. I think I, what you're I, saying is it doesn't make sense <laughs> in any way you put it, any metaphor you use. Like his response doesn't make sense. So I mean, I would push back on that a little bit because part of the incoherence with Trump and Russia is that substantively, he has not actually changed very much. And you could argue, actually, in some weird ways, at times, he's been tougher than Obama. So there are new sanctions on Russia. Sanctions have not been lifted, even though a lot of people thought they would be. The U.S. is sending 5,000 troops to Poland. A lot of people thought the U.S. wouldn't do that. And we have not given them back diplomatic compounds that Obama had seized at the end of his term. So there's this weird imbalance between Trump and his advisors, because his advisors basically say, Russia meddled, no question. Russia's a foe, no question. Trump won't say that. And when it comes to policy, Trump is doing things that are not pro-Russia. But then you have tweets like this, where he sort of implies he might be willing to down the road. The Washington Post, and I want to credit them because they're the ones who broke the story of the do not congratulate note card. They pointed out that some of his own advisors later said to them, not to worry about this because Trump often says things he doesn't mean. So don't read too much into this bizarre tweet because he says it and then forgets about it and think go back to the way, the way they should be. But that's the thing. Like the way they should be and the way Trump wants them to be with Russia are very, very, very different. And it's hard to see how do you get from the one to the other without causing a lot more problems on the way. Well, it's not obvious to me what the way things should be is. Dealing with a nuclear armed rogue power, which is basically what Putin's Russia is right now and the way that it's operating internationally, is, is difficult. That's a hard foreign policy problem because you need to check their influence without risking nuclear war. So yikes. Uh, it's it's not simple. The Obama administration didn't have good answers in their second half after the reset made minimal gains and then flopped when Putin became really aggressive. So I don't know what I would recommend doing when it comes to Russia policy. I do know, though, that as Yoki pointed out, there's this huge gap in policies between the most prominent messenger in the United States, which is to say the president and his Twitter account, and the actual actions of the administration. It's maybe almost worth drawing a distinction between President Trump's Russia policy, set through tweets and statements and high-level meetings, and the Trump administration's Russia policy, which is all done at a lower level, cabinet levels are lower, and, and is fairly aggressive. It's a very weird and, and incoherent contrast. It's definitely an incoherent contrast. Um, and I think one thing that, that really, really shows that clearly is how Sarah Sanders couldn't answer the question, is Russia a friend or foe? And so, you know, Sarah Sanders, we're talking about, obviously, the White House spokesperson. And you have also the real risk where if you are a Trump advisor and you go off message in the way that he wants to be on message and say, hey, Trump and Putin maybe shouldn't get along and Russia maybe isn't a friend, you could be fired. So you had... Rex Tillerson, Mr. Charisma, we devoted a whole episode to him. We still miss him now, even though he's still technically in office, although you don't really know if he is or isn't. Because oh, of how my, little, heart, my heart breaks for him. How little he does. We pour it out for you, Mr. Charisma. But Rex Tillerson was pretty hawkish on Russia, and he was fired. H.R. McMaster, the current national security advisor, is pretty hawkish and may soon be fired. And you had an amazing moment where H.R. McMaster, at a security conference, very publicly said, Russia meddled, no question about it. And then Trump tweeted to say, General McMaster forgot and started talking about his usual line about how there's no collusion. So you have the possibility, Zach, I think the way you put it is exactly right, of Trump being at war with his own administration. And if you're in the administration, you know you could be fired if you tell the truth. 
it's just a bizarre state of affairs because the way that policy typically works in a U.S. administration is the president sets priorities and the people who are working for him at the highest levels, cabinet secretaries, the national security advisor, they implement that directive. But here you have a kind of cyclical feedback loop where the president sets a priority, but then he doesn't do anything to make sure that it happens. And the advisors quietly do something totally different, which makes the president mad. And then he tries to set another priority via tweet and then it gets ignored again. And it just it seems like an unstable setup. And one side of it at a certain point has to give. You'd think. I mean, this has been lasting for over a year. So maybe it won't. Maybe the, you know, James Jim Mattis, who is the most hawkish of all of the Trump administration people in Russia, uh, just quietly keeps doing what he's doing and deploying troops to NATO allies. I also just wanted to say that um, the recent statements about the Russian double agent who was poisoned and Trump calling Putin in the middle of this and and saying that he congratulated him on, on winning the election, I feel like that also just speaks to this bizarre incoherence. I mean, we know that uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, uh, the U.S. joined with their major European allies, the U.K. and Germany and France, and put out a statement saying that they thought that um, Russia was was very likely responsible for this Russian double agent that was poisoned. Then not too long after that, Trump called Putin to basically congratulate him on winning a sham election. We also had something interesting from Sarah Sanders where she was saying we can't condemn their elections because who are we to tell other countries how to carry out their elections? But then you had Mike Pence say he's going to go talk about Venezuela and condemn them for how they carry out their own sham elections. So that's also really interesting, right? You've got a White House trying to excuse its soft public line towards Russia by saying we don't do that anywhere in the world, even though that is verifiably 100 percent false. And Alexia, I mean, there, too, you've got this, this disconnect about the very fundamentals in some cases of democracy. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, I mean, we can take like the case of the fact that Trump supports Putin. We can look at the fact that Trump has supported authoritarian leaders like Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt. Um, we can look at the fact that he said really positive things about Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Um, and he's just shown himself time and time again to be supportive of authoritarian leaders and also processes that are just inherently undemocratic. And um, we have the Egypt elections coming up very soon. And I think without a doubt, he's going to probably stand by Sisi when he gets elected. But it's like they're the authoritarians that he likes and the ones that he doesn't. And it's not clear to me how he decides which is which, right? Like Venezuela bad, uh, presumably because it's a leftist government. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey is good. He congratulated Erdogan after a referendum where he consolidated a ton of power in the presidency, undermining democracy and a NATO ally, right? And that's a quasi-Islamist government. And that one's bad. You would think under the Trump schema, but no, he likes Erdogan. So I just I don't understand like this Putin stuff seems to be very unique to Putin. But the broader authoritarian uh, envy that Trump seems to have or, or at least affection for authoritarians, I don't, I don't I don't fully grasp it. I don't get it. Well, I mean, he, he did congratulate Cece on his choice of shoes. So that might have something to do with it. Uh, style. That's, I mean, that's fairness, theory. they were really nice shoes. But you do also have this lingering question, and it's worth many hours of conversation because there's no real answer to it. But the question itself is worth asking of, does Russia have something on Trump? Right. We come back to that again and again and again, because we are always baffled by why it is. He can't simply answer the question, is Russia a friend of the United States? It is not. Just say it isn't. It's not a hard thing to, to wonder about. But he can't bring himself to say it. He can't bring himself to condemn Putin. He, he was once asked about all the people Putin's killed. And he said, we kill people too. I mean, it's an amazing, imagine President Obama 
drawing a moral equivalence between Putin, who kill, literally kills his political opponents, and the United States. There'd be calls for impeachment instantaneously. And that question of what does Russia have of anything, it just looms. It's like this dark cloud that never quite dissipates, really, ever. Uh, no, I mean, didn't John Brennan, the former CIA director, just say he thinks that Russia does, in fact, have something on, on Trump? And, like, John Brennan saying that is very different from random internet liberal, right? Like, this guy had access to the most classified of classified intelligence, which means that it's at very least an open question. Right. But what bothers me about this overall Trump policy when it comes to Russia isn't, though the unknowables, and that's the kind of thing that keeps you up at night, but what really, really worries me is the incoherence of the signals it sends to the Kremlin. It's not that I think that Trump is secretly a Russian agent or that Russia is coercing him into policy moves. It's that the Kremlin doesn't know how the United States as a government is going to react to its next bout of adventurism, whatever it does try to do next. And some of the options that, that people are worried about Russia trying, like military probing of a NATO ally, you know, that would be a, that would be, I mean, that would make the Ukraine crisis. I mean, so we were talking about potatoes. like, just because the phrase itself is, is actually vaguely jarring and sort of gross sounding, but military probing of a NATO ally, defined in a way that's less troubling. Yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> You went there. Well, uh, abducting. We were, we were all going there. <laughs> it means sending unmarked troops, un non-uniformed, potentially mercenaries into a NATO ally like a Baltic state, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and seeing how the West reacts. That's essentially risking war with the overall Western alliance. I think the other issue that's at play here is that because of the incoherent response to Russia, um, we have no real reason to think that Russia wouldn't again try to meddle in U.S. elections. Um, there's been, you know, some response, but again, because it's been so kind of piece piecemeal and incoherent, you know, Trump's given positive signals to Russia. We've put sanctions on them recently. Um, I don't think that that, in my mind at least, serves as a strong deterrence to future election meddling or cyber meddling or hacking. Yeah, I have zero doubt that Russia is going to interfere with the 2018 midterms or try to in the 2020 presidential election. But there's also a more tangible thing happening now. I mean, I, I agree. And you've had some comments this week about how, how the U.S. basically is unprepared. Not much has happened since the Russian hack of 2016 to prepare for the coming Russia hack of 2018. But you also have tangible impact on the relationships Washington has with allies. And the one that I want to talk about briefly before we close is England. I mean, we talked last week about just the enormity of a literal nerve attack inside a fairly crowded British town in, in Salisbury where you've had hundreds of people potentially exposed to this nerve agent. You've had two people plus a police officer who may die from it. It's scary. I mean, really, really scary. The photos from Salisbury are of like people in the sort of biohazard suits of park benches now covered in biohazard tents. There is no doubt Russia did this. The weapon in, that was used belongs only to the Soviet Union, was developed by the Soviet Union. There's no doubt that it was used by Russia. I mean, we can just say that pretty flatly. You have the statement, Alexei, you mentioned this before, where Trump now says yes, Russia did this, and we stand with our allies. But then if you're in the English government, if you're in the British government, if you're Theresa May, and you know that Trump just talked to the man responsible and didn't mention it, didn't say a word about it, you can understand the kind of message they take, which is we just don't matter to President Trump the way that Putin does, which is weird. No one matters to Trump in the way that Putin does. And what concerns me is the, the potential to create real fractures in the Western alliance, which again, increases this level of uncertainty. If 
the United States and the UK aren't on the same page when it comes to Russian aggression inside allied territory. What signal does it send to the Russians about being able to do this again? What signal does it send to France and Germany about their policy response and how much they can rely on the United States? Alliances depend on all of the partners respecting and trusting each other's commitment to each other. And it's especially important when there's a power imbalance. That is, the United States is by far the most powerful country in the NATO alliance. Without the U.S., the entire strategy of the alliance gets called into question. And the consequences of that, of a weakening NATO alliance on the basis of the U.S.'s refusal at the highest level to, to condemn Russian aggression, I don't know. I don't. I again for for, for the umpteenth time this episode, we we're in uncharted territory, right? Yeah. We've never seen the U.S. act like this before. I feel if, if I feel like if I were the U.K., I would consider the U.S. to be very very untrustworthy based on what's just happened in the past few weeks. Um, I would I would feel like I just couldn't trust that the U.S. would back me, and that just says really negative things about our alliance with the U.K. and with other strong European allies going forward, because if they can't depend on us to actually stand by our word and to do, you know, what we said we're going to do, how, what does that mean for trade? What does that mean for any kind of, you know, future um, military action? Like, it, it just, it's just bad. It's bad overall. And it, it does come back, and we saw this again sort of tangibly, this weird disconnect. And Zach, I was glad you, you framed it as you did, between Trump and his own administration, because Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador, has come really hard at Russia since this attack. She has not hesitated. She said, this is Russia, this is Russia. They mocked her and said she must be a great chemist to know that she has so much information about this this nerve agent. And they, I mean, they deny it, as you'd expect them to. But here, too, I mean, if she's at the Security Council trying to get sanctions or at least a discussion of this nerve agent attack, but then the president still kind of can't bring himself to mention it publicly, and we know won't bring himself to mention it privately, at the U.N. also. I mean, there are so few venues in which Russia could be hammered. The U.N. is one. They have a veto, so the odds of it happening are not high, but they could be hammered there. And they're not being because, in part, the disconnect between a U.N. ambassador and their president, NATO, but there's a disconnect there. And so you sort of circle back to this weird place of whether or not Putin has anything on Trump, and, and we don't know. I mean, there's the tape we all wonder about and kind of don't really want to see because it'd be really troubling. But we do know that Putin has something on Trump insofar as Trump's behavior reflects an unwillingness to confront him. So Putin has that advantage. He has that kind of leg up on Trump because Trump just won't push back. And that, again, raises the risk of Russia trying something dangerous. Because if they think they can get away with more things like the poisoning, more things like its brazen intervention in Syria, its annexation of Crimea, right? This is just an escalating pattern, especially because Putin's government depends, his, his continued support from the Russian people and elite, depends on his ability to gin up this nationalist sentiment. He was actually in a fair amount of domestic political trouble before the Ukraine war, and that led to an increase, a significant increase in Putin's domestic popularity. So all of the incentives for him under a Trump presidency align in one direction, which is greater and more aggression. Where and how that happens isn't clear to me, but I would be shocked. I would be shocked if we don't see something new and dangerous from the Putin government. So part of what's fun about doing this podcast is that we hear from listeners who do all kinds of things. Some people are students, some people work in law, some are in journalism, and some have service businesses. I have a good friend who's a plumber. He does a lot of work for us. He does a lot of work for our neighbors. And we talk with him by text. And I know that for him, sometimes keeping track of records can be hard if you have a small business. Knowing who to charge can be hard. And we have a product that can help, House Call Pro. 
It's designed for any service business. It's an app and it's really easy to use. It's been voted the number one software for running your business on the go. It saves time, it organizes your business, and it makes your life a whole lot less stressful. It's ideal if you do plumbing, if you do carpet cleaning, if you do HVAC, if you're an electrician. And here's what it could do for you. Scheduling and dispatching, sending customers text updates so they know when you're coming or when you might be late, online booking, and maybe most importantly, payment processing. So if you're ready to get your service business organized and streamlined with your customers, go to housecallpro.com worldly, tell them Vox Worldly sent you, and they'll waive your $9-9 activation fee. So again, it's housecallpro.com worldly, housecallpro.com worldly. I try to keep myself informed and educated about as much as I can. It's difficult sometimes when you have a job, when you've got toddlers, so you look for the chances you can in the windows where you can. And that's why I'm a fan of the Great Courses Plus. And I want you to be able to check it out too so you can see what we like about it. It gives you unlimited access to thousands of courses from the world's best professors and experts. And you can listen to them and learn about anything that interests you, no matter what you're doing. You can brush up on philosophy in the car. You can explore ancient history when you're doing the dishes. You can improve your understanding about the solar system when you're walking your dog and trying to avoid things left behind by other dogs. And you could set your preferred playback speed, kind of like a podcast. And you could also toggle back to video for visual context anytime you want. Here's one example. The Great Courses Plus's course on learning Spanish. It's a course that's a great way to learn how to speak Spanish, how to understand Spanish. If you've done it before, how you can brush up on what you may have learned in the past. If you have never done it, like I have because I'm ignorant, you can learn it at your own pace and sort of learn as you go. So here's how you get it. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today and get a free trial with unlimited access to all of their lectures by going to our special URL. And so to start that free trial now, you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly and you could download the free The Great Courses Plus app. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly. So for elsewhere, we're heading to cyberspace, where Russia and Venezuela are working on something new, a cryptocurrency. It's called, kind of wondrously, the Petro. And this week, President Trump signed an executive order banning U.S. residents from using it. And that didn't sit well, as you might imagine, with the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, who said this. El petro le va bien, le va bien a toda Venezuela. Entonces, el día de ayer, el so what he's saying there is, if the petro is doing well, all of Venezuela is doing well. And then yesterday, the imperialist government of the United States issued a decree against the petro. Did you see it? A shameful, illegal, absurd decree. I love the diplomatic way in which he said that. So, Zach, we've all heard of Bitcoin. I mean, this is something that at least is out there in the pop culture to a degree. We haven't heard much about the Petro or Russia's potential, equally amazingly named crypto ruble. What are these? So cryptocurrencies are, I mean, they were before there was state sponsorship in the game, but they were free-floating currencies that uh, just existed entirely on the Internet and were traded entirely using Beyond the internet, there wasn't any hard peg. There wasn't any central bank issuing and controlling the supply of money. It was all determined uh, by various different, depending on the currency, various different mechanisms for acquiring it. And so the price was set entirely through online markets. The idea of a government issuing one is new. The Petro is the first one ever to happen. And to me, it seems kind of like a contradiction in terms. The idea of a cryptocurrency is that it's not controlled that it's entirely traded online and all set through private interactions. But here you have a government, the Venezuelan government, they set the number of Petros that were going to be released initially and allowed people to purchase them. Like that's basically just a standard fiat currency, only 
sold online. Like it's it sounds cool and sexy, but it just seems like the problem is that Venezuela's traditional currency is in the toilet. And so they need to they need to make up a new one. And that's what they're doing. So fiat currency sounds like the world's worst named luxury car. But Alexa, we're talking about sort of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. These countries want it for a reason, right? It's not coincidence that it's Venezuela and it's Russia and it's North Korea. They're trying to issue these because they're trying to get around sanctions. They're trying to figure out a way of getting money through a financial system without the U.S. blocking it. And I think that's the kind of interesting thing here about who who's issuing these and, and kind of why. No, I agree. I think that's interesting. I also wanted to go back to, to Zach's point, which is that, um, you know, Venezuela's currency is in the toilet. So many people are just struggling right now in the country. It seems like maybe there could be better things to focus on than, than making, you know, a cryptocurrency. I see the logic of it from the Venezuelan government's point of view, which is they're they're under U.S. sanction. Their economy and their currency is due to a series of very bad economic policy decisions by their government entering into a spiral of inflation. Ordinary Venezuelans uh, have a lot of difficulty using their currency to acquire traditional, like, you know, staple goods. So if you just basically make up a new currency and use a new technology for it with a new name, maybe it'll be easier for people to purchase things for import and do various different things that could evade the U.S. sanctions. That's the point of it. Like, the logic of it isn't crazy in the abstract. In the abstract, yeah. In practice— it seems like it'll almost certainly fail to solve Venezuela's problems. Right. And and that was kind of my question. Like, is this intended to be a solution to the economic crisis in Venezuela for the ordinary Venezuelan? Like, are people actually expected to be to be using these to, to buy goods? I mean, maybe you can explain that a little bit more to me, because it seems a little too abstract and a little too theoretical. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, as is often the case, these are created to kind of help the rich in this case, the rich or the powerful. I mean, these are governments, and, and I want to just drill down for a second into why these are happening, because these are governments that are sanctioned. And the, and the way that you can sanction a government most effectively is to say, you cannot access our financial system. And if you have a bank where your money's held, we will come sanction that bank. So you can think about it almost as if there's a physical bank and the money is in that physical bank, and you could sanction it and say that money is now going to be taken. With a cryptocurrency, there is no bank, right? So if we're thinking about trying to, to best understand this, there's no money that can be found. There are no banks that can be found. So there's nothing that can really be sanctioned. There's an amazing moment in which this thing was announced, the, the Petro, in Venezuela publicly. And Maduro did this. We know we, we now know he's done this with the help of the Russians. In the room, when he announced it, were two Russian advisors, two of the Venezuelan president who helped design this. And he made this really explicit as to why he was developing this. He referred to the Petro, this was his exact word, as kryptonite against the U.S. government, which he sarcastically referred to as Superman. But so he was very explicitly saying, with Russians in front of him, this is our way of getting around sanctions. And, and I think that's where this gets kind of dangerous, because sanctioning and blocking cryptocurrency, whether or not it's widely used, is really, really hard. Yeah, that's true. The difficulty is that the value of a cryptocurrency depends on people's willingness to purchase it. And you can't just say, if you're the Venezuelan government, this cryptocurrency is worth a billion dollars, right? Like each Petro can buy like the state of California or something like that. People have to want to buy it and think that they can get stuff out of it. 
The fact that the U.S. government has sanctioned the use of Petros means that people are unlikely to invest in this currency. And the fact that Venezuela's economy is extremely weak suggests that people are unlikely to buy this in the way that they buy Bitcoin or used to buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. So, like, well, again, in theory, it's a fine way to evade sanctions. In practice, it depends on people wanting to invest in your economy and this government. And I have a lot of difficulty thinking that there are going to be a bunch of people online who are like, oh, yes, the country that has toilet paper shortages is the cryptocurrency we should invest in. And I think that kind of gets to the question of what country goes next. I mean, Venezuela was the first. They did this basically with Russian help. Russia, in some ways, experimented with cryptocurrency by saying, hey, Venezuela, you make one, and then we'll follow on if we if we like it. And Russia is considering one with the glorious name of the crypto ruble. It hasn't yes, been launched. Yes. It never be launched. It has just this amazing name, and I love it. And there, too, the Russians are not being subtle as to why they want to create the glorious name crypto ruble. You had a man named Sergei Glazov, who's an economic advisor to Vladimir Putin, and he was talking about why they might create this, like why they want this thing. And he said, we can settle accounts, I mean, do business, with no regard for sanctions. And so you have no attempt to hide this, which is kind of in itself remarkable, right? Like, Zach, I agree completely. Practically, we don't know if these will come into existence. We don't know who's going to line up to buy them. But no one's trying to hide why they're there, right? No one's saying, we're developing the crypto ruble because Russia is powerful and the ruble should be used everywhere in the world, including cyberspace. They're saying, we're going to create this to evade sanctions. Uh, I have a question about that, too, before we move on. Has a cryptocurrency ever successfully revived a country's economy? Has this ever really been tried before? No, the Petro is the first one ever, and it just went on sale. So it's it. I don't think it's going to do anything. And and I just, I don't know. Yoki, you seem a little, and Alexia too, you both seem a little more worried about this than I am, whereas my view is like, this is the equivalent of Silicon Valley's obsession with various different cryptocurrencies before the recent crypto crash, right? Like I went to a conference recently in Silicon Valley, and it was impossible to move without somebody talking your ear off about blockchain, so the technology that a lot of cryptocurrencies run on. And it just it feels like a bubble uh, or a hype, right? It's just a lot of people using a term they barely understand. I've never had anyone cogently explain blockchain to me. And, and this is now countries getting on the hype train being like, well, if it works in Western economies and for all these fancy tech people, maybe it'll solve our economic problems, international sanctions. If it allows you to buy like, I don't know, cocaine on the dark web, then maybe it'll allow us to get around international sanctions. And no, I don't think it'll work that way. This is just like the international equivalent of the hype train. Yeah, I agree. I'm really skeptical about it, to be honest. I, I just don't see this solving Venezuela's economic problems. Um, and and I, I don't know if I see everybody really getting on board with it. You said it's for the wealthy, but we have to think about the fact that like people are trying to buy toilet paper. They're trying to buy basic goods. Is this really going to have some sort of like trickle-down effect that's going to then make that easier for people? I, I really don't think so, but we'll see. Alexia, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being in. You're welcome. And Zach, as always, we want to thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Jillian Weinberger. If you like what you heard, we hope you did. Come find us on Twitter, hashtag WorldlyPodcast. You can email us, worldlyatvox.com. Come also find, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere else you like to get podcasts from. We will be with you all next week.